0: Father, thank you for this time this evening and uh, thank you that you are with us as we meet, that you're here by your spirit. Would you please open our eyes now to this extraordinary book that we've started to look at, that we're trying to understand. Please, would you uh, help us to understand it better, understand you better as a result and get to know Jesus better. Um, and would this also please prepare us for our small groups as we prepare then to look at the book of Joel there, and to delve a bit deeper into what it looks like for us in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. So we've been um, we've we've had a couple of sermons in in Joel, and hopefully you have um, heard those. Uh, Catch up if you haven't. Um, And uh, we're going to try and take a bit of a step back. So I'm not just going to repeat what was in the sermons um, because that's more in the detail of the text and the application. We're we're just going to take a step back and try and just put put some of the sort of stuff that might be in the background um of a sermon that never get never gets said because you don't want to spend your time on a sunday morning talking about the dates and you know who it was written you know uh, authorship and all that sort of stuff it's not very in one sense it's not particularly helpful um in in a sort of take home this is the, what difference does it makes in my life but it does make a difference um to how we understand the book and particularly if you're preparing to teach it there are certain things that we need to kind of to get into as well as some of the sort of questions about what is actually happening in the book and I want to try and help you understand some of the decisions that I've made in pre- so that you can uh, you know you can see if you agree and you can see uh, how that works and that will help when you come to your small groups um, to to discuss things okay so we, we're going we're to ask uh, several questions. We're going we're to ask, when was Joel written? And it turns out once you ask that question, most of the other questions that we need to think about kind of start to unravel and need to be asked as well in order to just answer that question, when was Joel written? Okay, So it's not just a look it up in a dictionary type question. Um, th- th- this is a question that um, you, you, we need to try and answer by looking at the book, but it will actually get us into what the book is about in order to answer the question in the first place. Um, and it's, it's worth saying when we look at any book in the Bible, you know, when, when someone stands up and says, well, this book was written during the, you know, in this period, well, how do they know that? How do they know, how do people know, you know, when the, where the Bible comes from and, uh, who, who wrote it? Um, you know, you, you, people say, oh, well, you, you know, you go and look it up in the book, you look it up on Wikipedia, it will tell you. Well, it might do, but how do you know that's true? Um, so the, the, the answer really is that we start by looking at what the Bible says about itself. That is our primary source for um, questions like who wrote it, uh, humanly speaking, um, and uh, when was it written. Um, and some books in the Bible give us more clues than others. So some books start with a, a very big clue on you know, exactly when it was written, tying into the different uh, kings of, of the time, thinking Old Testament, things like that. Some books are a little bit vaguer. And uh, if they're a bit vaguer, that means that we don't need to know. It doesn't matter, probably. Um, but sometimes we need to do a little bit more digging to actually figure out, well, what, what can we say here? And how does that help us understand what this book is about? So that's what we're going to do, first of all. Now, I, I've got that, that box on the front of the handout. It says, when was Joel written? got three kind of questions there, looking at different bits of text. Okay. And so... I your tables at those questions for about five minutes together. You're going to need to try and read the the bits quite quickly. Uh, Don't spend ages doing that. Um, But you want to try and get into those questions and just go with sort of, it's not meant to be an in-depth, really difficult question. They're meant to be fairly straightforward questions you can get by looking at those verses um, to start to get into this question. Of when was Joel written and just bear in mind that the first question is really a trick question and you'll probably see why once you start to look. So uh, what do we know about Joel? Not a lot, is the answer. We know he was the son of Pethuel. Who was Pethuel? Don't know. So and uh, you know some, sometimes you know the prophets get mentioned in in other Books in the Bible, so you get you can sort of cross-reference, begin to build up a picture of who they were. Uh, with this, uh, Chappy, we don't know. Okay, so that is the first um, thing. What institution is present in Israel according to these verses? Just call out. What was that temple? So, if you're going to think of um, fitting that with the history of Israel, just think. Well, okay, there was a time when there wasn't a temple. Then there was a temple. Then the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple and they uh, took Israel into, um, them into exile. And then they came back from exile and they rebuilt the temple. So you can see the options there for when this might be talking about. It can't be talking about during the exile because there isn't a temple then. But there is eventually a temple after the exile. There's also a temple before the exile happens. Okay. Um, What is the geographical focus of Joel's prophecy? Who does he he address? Yeah, so he keeps saying, and particularly towards the end of the book, he keeps mentioning specifically Jerusalem, specifically uh, Zion. Um, And again, um, that might make you... Well, it, it, ma- it makes you immediately think there are, you know, there are some prophets that address the northern kingdom. He's not one of those. He's addressing the southern kingdom, so it could be, uh, you know, just 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 be- with that clue, it could be well before the exile happens. There's some prophecy that comes into to, to Jerusalem specifically. It could be later on when they come back to uh, Jerusalem, um, but that is the the, the focus for uh, where they're talking. Okay, right. so the uh later on in yeah and in fact the um uh, you yeah the, the 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 particular people tarside and regions of philistia um these are the kind of rivals of israel um i think it's not decisive exactly what that means is is the basic answer to that and uh, we'll we'll be looking at that next uh, week in more detail um similarly <laughs> not uh you know not not completely decisive as to what when that might be and um what that m- might mean for when he's writing okay the the next piece we need to think about is Um, this theme of the day of the Lord. Now, just to reassure you, we haven't answered that question yet. When was it written? We need to now carry on and then we'll come back to it. Okay. So the the next thing to to, to, to piece of the puzzle, if you like, is what is he talking about with the day of the Lord, which is this theme that we've already heard about in our sermons over the, the last couple of weeks. Um, first of all, I thought I think it would be helpful to see how is this phrase used in other books um, and other uh, parts of the Bible? What is it? Because it's not just used in Joel. It's a, one of those phrases that pops up all over the place. OK, so I've got uh, five references for you there. Can you look up those quickly in your groups? Um, again, don't spend too much time just, just reading them, try and crack through them and then think, um, what is the day of the Lord referring to? So another few minutes doing that together. In the groups, let's go. Okay. So, what does the Day of the Lord refer to in Isaiah chapter thirteen? Judgment on Babylon. Great. So it says Babylon at the start of the chapter. It's um, so it's a day of judgments, and it's you know it's big calamitous day, and it's aimed at Babylon, Babylon, enemy of uh, of God's people. Okay. So. That's the the first uh, first one. Amos five. Do you notice? So it's a day of darkness, day of um, attack, day of be in an army coming in the Assyrians. Um, but do you notice at the start of that? Uh, it says um, why? It says something like I've got it in front of me. It says something like why do you um, why do you long for this day? Um, you know the, the, this great day. And so there's the the point there is. If you've got a day in mind where God is going to judge his enemies, um, like we heard in, in Isaiah against Babylon, um, Amos is, is earlier, but still the same idea. If you've got this, that great day in mind where God is going to come judge the world and sort out all our problems and judge them, you've got to understand that that judgment's going to come on you as well. So that is Amos' big point, that it's not just the nations who are going to be judged on the day of the Lord, it's you as well. Okay, what about Zephaniah? A day of sacrifice, Yep. Who's it who's aimed at? Yeah, so if you look back at verse 4, you see this. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. So again, this idea of, oh, great, the day of the Lord, finally, everything's going to be sorted out. It's against Judah. It's against the heart of God's people. Okay, so that, that day is going to come against them. What about the two New Testament references? What are they uh, referring to? Yeah, the final judgment day, the day when Jesus returns. Okay, now you've got a little diagram there, which um, is copied from the ESV study Bible, which is actually really helpful on Joel. Um, Just as an aside, I'm not a big fan of study Bibles, so I don't recommend that you drag your study Bible into your small group Bible study, because what happens is we all go, oh, but the study Bible says this. it's like, as we've been saying before, what we want to look at is what does the Bible say, first of all. And it's really tempting when you're in a Bible study with a study Bible to just quote the study Bible. But for preparation and for for getting into things in order to, to try and understand what the book's about, the ESV, English Standard Version Study Bible, is absolutely superb. And on Joel in particular, it's really concise, but clear and, and helpful. And it has this um, little diagram, which gives you um, some insights into other ways that this really important phrase, the day of the Lord, is used. Okay. So if you're, not, if you're getting a bit lost, what, what we've done so far is we're saying, we've got this question when was Joel written? We're trying to fit him in, we're trying to fit the book into the history of Israel. We've, start, we've sort of ruled out, we, we, you know, we started to answer when it could be and when it couldn't be. We're now trying to think, okay, there's this thing that keeps coming up in the book. The Day of the Lord, and it keeps being repeated. Okay, well, so what 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 do we know about that? And now, we, now we've seen um, the Day of the Lord is a thing that often gets talked about in the Old Testament, in particular, and and then on into the New. So, the Day of the Lord is going to be a day when God comes and visits. But it isn't. It, what you find as you go through the Bible is it's not just talking about one day. Although it says the Day of the Lord, the Day of the Lord's Through the history of the bible refers to a lot of different days and occasions but the thing that they all have in common is that they are particular times when god acts in a sort of uh, in a big way in either judgment or salvation or both at the same time okay so it's it's a sort of visitation by god He, he steps into the world and um, he, uh, he he brings either judgment, particularly on God's enemies, but then also actually judgment on God's people because they've rejected him. But then actually, even after that, salvation for God's people. And so you get all of these things coming together in one uh, piece and one, one thing at the same time. So there are multiple days. Here are some examples, things that get called the Day of the Lord. So the exile of the northern kingdom to Assyria, which is in 722 BC, that is a day of the Lord when when the uh, the, the Assyrian army comes and takes them off into uh, captivity. Uh, 587 BC, the exile to Babylon, that's another day of the Lord when God steps in and in, in, in judgment on his people. And then the restoration from exile, bringing people back from exile into the land. Um, That is also called a day of the Lord. But then as well as all of those kind of these all days within history, you know, you can read about them in the the, the history books. Um, These are things which which are called the day of the Lord in the Bible. But as well as those days in history, there is then looking forwards a day in the far future. That even in the Old Testament is looked forward to and is called the day of the Lord, a day of final reckoning and sorting out. So each of these days of the Lord is a a day of judgment and sorting things out and God coming and stepping in and putting things right and judgment and salvation. But in view always is a final day when things will be sorted out once and for all, a final day of judgment and salvation to put everything right okay so just to um help us think about that a bit more if you if you look then on the next page you've got this image of the candles and we i talked about this in the sermon um on sunday that we need to understand that things look different if you're joel looking forwards in history versus if you are a christian today looking backwards and still forwards in history things look different and we had this idea of candles. So it's like a row of candles. Um, and if you are standing sort of, um, uh, you know, above the row or alongside the row, you can see all the different candles lined up. But if you go down to one end, and look along the row of candles, all you know, you, there'll be a point where you can only see one flame. And they're all kind of contained within this one flame. And Joel's perspective is that standing at the end and seeing the one flame. Okay, so he sees he looks at the future, and talks about day of the lord and he sees it all as one we are able this side of jesus coming to look at those same events that he's talking about but see them differentiated from each other and see that in some ways you know some of the things he was talking about get fulfilled here and some here and some here and we can see it spread out a bit more and and some are still to be fulfilled in the future Okay, and we, we, we saw two weeks ago at the end of chapter one, if you remember, or chapter one and the first half of chapter two in Joel, we, we, we heard about the warning of the day of the Lord to come. But then we heard actually there's a real sense in which the day of the Lord has already come and it's come at the cross, it's come when Jesus died. Because what does Joel say is going to happen? There's going to be a day of darkness. And the sun uh, will turn to darkness, a day of misery, a day of destruction. And actually all of those things are things that describe very well the death of Jesus. And so the cross and Jesus's death is a day of the Lord, a day when judgment that was thought to be going to happen at the end of history happens in the middle of history. Okay, so we've got all of these things um, to, to 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 think about with the with the day of the Lord. Um, as that, 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 what I've then written down is how things look from Joel's perspective and then the New Testament perspective in terms of the events that Joel talks about. So this is starting to get into more specifics. So we've got the day of the locusts. If you follow if you turn to Joel and just just look at what we're talking about, but you, we, we've looked at this in the in the sermons on a Sunday. We've got the day of the locusts in uh, chapter 1, 1 to 20, chapter 1. So do you remember we started with this idea of um, there's this great natural disaster that has happened in their experience at that time. Locusts have come and they've destroyed everything. And Joel's response is to say, do you know what? Things are going to get worse. There's a worse day of the Lord to come. Okay. So that again gets described in 2, 1 to 17, the day of the Lord to come. Um, but then we get um, from chapter 2, uh, 18 to 27, that actually the day is delayed. Um, and uh, instead, there is there is room for repentance. There is room for restoration and judgment um, uh, are, are promised. Then what we're going to see this Sunday is the presence of the Lord in, in, in that day, when that day eventually comes by his spirit among his people in the midst of war, in the midst of suffering. And then chapter three looks forward again to the day of the Lord to come, finally a kind of final day of reckoning and um, a day of judgment. From a New Testament perspective, we look back at what Joel was describing, and with our viewpoint where we can see the candles sort of spread out, we can say, as we've been beginning to say so far, we can say, well. Days like the day of the locusts come often. So we, we looked at that bit where J- Jesus talks to people who come to him and say, you know, that, that, uh, the, 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 those people whose blood was mixed with the sacrifices in the temple that Pilate had killed, you know, terrible, terrible thing, desecrating thing that happens. Was that because they were worse sinners that they suffered that kind of horrible fate? And then that tower that collapsed on all those people, was that because they were worse sinners And Jesus says, no, it's not because they're worse sinners, but unless you repent, you too will perish. So it's the same logic of, um, you know, that was pretty bad, but bad stuff happens in a fallen world. Locusts come, towers collapse, COVID happens. Okay, these are all days of locusts. These are all sort of natural disaster type things. They're not the result of somebody doing something really stupid or sinful individually and then suffering the effects of that. That does happen, but that's not what this kind of suffering is. This is just general day of locusts, and they ha- it happens all the time through history. Days of locusts come often. So we, we, can, we, we then need to understand Jesus's message that, you know, that there is, unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, there is a day of the Lord to come. But we then understand that the day of the Lord came at the cross And so if we, the judgment that we deserve on that final day of the Lord has already been taken by Jesus at the cross. But there is still the final day of the Lord to come. So it's been anticipated in Jesus, but it's still to come. And, you know, 2 Peter 3 talks about it as that day of the Lord that is still to come. That's the day of Joel chapter 3. It's the day of 2 Peter 3. It's the end of Revelation It is the day when Jesus returns. That day is still to come. What must we do then? Well, we need to uh, repent, put our trust in Jesus. Then we know that the judgment we deserve has been taken by him. And in between, we then have the spirit being poured out that we'll see at the end of chapter two on Sunday, um, fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, the spirit with his people in the midst of war and suffering. Okay, so um, that, that's just to try and get us to understand how this term, the day of the Lord, is used. The bottom line is it's used in lots of different ways. And it means different things at different points in history. Sometimes it means a specific event in history. Sometimes it means the end of history. Okay, it's, it's all of these things. And that's what's going on in the book of Joel. What then about these locusts? Okay, because I've I've, I've described to you what I think is going on with the locusts. It is fair to say that if you start doing your your own research and you start looking into these, uh, into the Book of Joel, you'll find people suggest slightly different things about what what might be going on with the locusts. Okay, so I I think it's helpful just to to, to explain um, exactly why. Uh, I think this is what's going on in, in Joel, and, and other people do too. So, it, <clears throat> there are four options okay for understanding what's going on in the book of Joel with these locusts. So, there isn't the op- option one is that the locusts in chapter one are talking about an actual locust infestation, which is what I've been saying, but then chapter two is just an, another description of the same locust invasion. Okay, so do you remember, do you remember we had? You know that the great locust swarm has left. The great locusts have eaten what the great locusts have left. The young locusts have eaten what the young locusts have left. other locusts have eaten. Chapter one, verse four, and then and then descriptions of of um, the fangs of the teeth of a lion. The fangs of a lioness. It's laid waste my vines. It's ruined my fig trees. And then we come to chapter two, and we get more kind of destruction. And people go, oh, it's just the same thing. It's all the same thing all the way through. So it's locust then. It's more locusts to, to come. Okay, and that will then, if you think that's what's going on, that will change what you think's going on with the day of the Lord and what it's referring to and, and when it happens in history. Okay, second thing is uh, ch- chapter one um, describes an actual lo- uh, locust infestation. Chapter two issues a warning about a coming military offensive. So, um, uh, that, yeah, so, so that's more like what we've been saying, but it's slightly different in that it's just saying... Uh, chapter one is locusts chapter two is describing an army but it's describing a specific event that's about to happen um that uh is going to come to them so there's going to be an army who's going to come and take them maybe the army is going to come and take them into exile or something like that and that's what chapter two is about okay that's the second option the third option is that you've got a locust infestation in chapter in chapter one and then you've got in chapter two. Um, a, uh, the, the same imagery used to portray a human army, but that that in itself is then actually an, a metaphor for the coming day of the Lord. So uh, let, let me explain what I mean by that. So you can have multiple layers of metaphor. So you can have um, the the locusts are, um, are used as a way to describe an army. But the army itself is being used as a way to describe the carnage that will happen on the day when God judges the world. But it's not actually a literal army at that point. It's just that, you know, what words can we possibly find to describe what is going to happen? Well, the only words we can think of are words to do with an army. But it's not that, you know, the the Russians are going to turn up or the, the Americans are going to turn up or whatever with their actual real life army. And that's going to be the day of the Lord. Um, You know, that's what it was like in, you know, Assyria and Babylon. It was a real-life army that turned up then. But there are good reasons to think the end of the world as it's described in the book of Revelation is using images that we understand to describe something that will be unlike what we've ever experienced. But it has to use images like army so that we just get how serious it is. But it's metaphor. And so it's then saying it's an army which which will behave, which will be as destructive as locusts are. In other words, basically, it's going to be really, really destructive and a really, really um, difficult day uh, to endure. Okay, so that is um, uh, uh, the third option. The fourth option is that it's all armies. Okay, chapter one is an army. So it looks like it's talking about locusts, but really, again, it's a metaphor for for army destruction. And uh, that means that chapter two is also... <clears throat> um, an army like the Assyrians or the Babylonians coming. Okay, and I want to suggest to you that there are good reasons to say that this is uh, that the, the number three there is the most accurate one that makes most sense of what the text actually says. So what that means is that you've got chapter one is talking about locusts who are like an army. So it, it really is locusts. But they come in and they, and they um, strip things bare like an army does. Um, so they march in, you know, they, they, you know here, here they come, they're marching. They're a nation that has invaded a mighty army without number, verse 6. But the point is, Joel is using the idea of an army to tell you how dreadful the locust um, invasion is. OK, chapter one is locusts like an army. Then chapter two is an army who are like locusts. So um, here here they come and uh, they uh, plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city, they run along the wall, they climb into the houses like thieves, they enter through the windows. So that is actually talking about an army, but it's kind of like, it sounds a bit like the locusts that you've heard about in chapter one. They're kind of stepping up a gear from just locusts to an army. Okay. there are, uh, d- 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 there are differences in the verbs that you can't quite see in English between chapter one and chapter two. So chapter one is basically talking about a past event, something that has happened, okay? And uh, so the day of the locust has happened, wake up to what's really going on, look at, look at how dreadful this locust infestation has been, but beware chapter two, future focused okay now tenses in Hebrew don't quite work like they do in English I won't go into that but it's not quite as simple as you know past or future but it, it's, ba- it, 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 it's basically that okay um, so past past in chapter one future chapter two and that again is a clue to saying um, this thing that's going to happen in the future is not just more locusts um, it is uh, a, a dreadful event to come the the responses that you see then um, point you in that direction too so chapter 1 verses 15 to 20 the end of the chapter um those verses are lamenting at how dreadful the locust invasion is so verse 16 has not the food been cut off before our very eyes joy and gladness from the house of our gods the seeds are shriveled beneath the clods the storehouses are in ruins that's what happens when locusts come that's how dreadful it is all those things happen okay so it's lamenting that chapter two is uh, just is talking about how the effects of what, what happens when an actual army comes so verse 11 the lord thunders at the head of his army his forces are beyond number mighty is the army that obeys his command the day of the lord is great it is dreadful who can endure it his army um, and uh, later on, do you remember we had the thing about the northern horde, you know, not actual northerners. It's okay, Liz from Cheshire. Um, it's okay, David from Scotland. But when he says, I will drive the northern horde far from you, he presumably isn't, that's, that would be an odd way to talk about locusts in chapter 2, verse 20. It would be an odd phrase to to use to describe locusts, but it does sound like the sort of thing they would have said about real-life armies that they might be afraid of, okay? So um, all of these things are are pushing us towards that third view of of what's actually going on here. So in terms then of the, uh, you know, when did this happen, if if this is right and it's the the view three, um, you've got a real day of locusts, and a real day of the Lord to come, um, that is totally cataclysmic, um, it, is, it seems most likely that it's not talking about, that the, the, the great event to come is more than simply, for example, being taken into exile, um, because when the other prophets tell, the, the, you tell Israel and tell Judah that they're going to take them into exile, They tend to tell them the reason that you, God's people, are going to be taken to exile is because of this specific sin that you've done. You're worshipping idols. Stop worshipping idols. And they put their finger on something specific that uh, God's people are doing. And they say, if you don't stop doing that, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to wipe you out. Now, you don't get that in Joel. All you get is you're suffering a natural disaster, no mention of specific sin. And unless you repent, you too will perish there is, you know, there is a great day of the Lord to come, okay? And, and so, and based around that and the, the fact that there's a temple there, so they must have, um, have rebuilt it, um, there's that reference to selling the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, chapter 3, verse 6, um, that you might send them far from their homeland, i.e. something that, ha- that seems to have already happened. It seems that um, this this is probably written to God's people after they've come back from exile. So in the in the four hundred years before Jesus comes, so it's very late in that way in the in, in the Old Testament compared to many of the other books. Okay. So um, this is a. Um, uh, that, that that that's that that is how you know we're ending up at the question that we started with the the question about when uh, was Joel written, and we understanding about the day of the Lord, thinking through what the locusts are about helps us in, in the end to pinpoint it most likely as being at that point. Now you will find Bible believing, solid commentators. Who have different, slightly different views on, on these things. So, the bottom line there is it's probably one of those questions that you can't have a completely solid answer to, and therefore it probably doesn't matter. Because if God wanted us to know, he, He'd given us more detail, and He hasn't. Okay, but it's you know, it, the more you can think about the background to a book, the more you can understand what is likely to be going on when you're looking at the details. So, it's helpful to try and work it through, and what I have outlined to you, I think, is the most likely view of what is going on. Um, One question to consider um, just uh, along the way is whether locusts could be a sign of covenant breaking or covenant curses coming on God's people. In Deuteronomy, Uh, locusts are a sign of God's judgment and it's true in in the book of Exodus remember the plagues Uh, locusts are a sign of judgment Deuteronomy says you know if you break the covenant one of the things that will happen out of a massive list of other things in one verse it just mentions locusts as a thing that will come on you at the end of uh, the book of Revelation um, part of uh, or in the middle in chapter nine there's a whole description of things to do with locusts in the context of God's judgment. So locusts, you know, do have something to do with God's judgment. But I don't think here they are being referred to as a consequence of breaking the covenant for the reasons that I have given. There is no sin highlighted in, the, um, in Joel, a specific sin that they need to repent of. There's a general call to repent, like all Christians need to repent, and all people need to repent of our general sin. But there's nothing specific when they go, stop worshipping idols or something like that. Um, there is no reference to the covenant itself. No reference to specific sin. Um, if we're right that this is after the exile anyway, um, then you know it, there is no exile to come. Um, and, and they, they've already been brought back and uh, you know, they, they've already suffered the consequences of breaking the covenant. Now they've been brought back. So this seems to be, this, this calamity that they've suffered, the, these locusts that have destroyed everything, seem to be a sign of a general way that the whole world is under a curse due to sin. So locusts are always bad. They're always a curse, but they just may not always be a covenant-breaking curse that comes on you because you have broken the covenant. They may just be a sign that, yeah, we're, all, we're living in a broken, fallen world. We're all sinners. There's a general way in which we all suffer in different ways at different times because we're all sinners. And locusts seem to be a, a, a sign of that general curse as much as a specific one. So what then, you know, locusts, the, 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 the final question for us before, we, before I open up to any other questions. <clears throat> in terms of applying this now, we started to do this in the sermons on Sunday, um, I don't know when the last time you felt locusts were an issue in your life, but I, I don't think I've ever seen a locust in, up close and personal, but other people may have done. Um, I don't think it would be very nice, would it, to have a, this massive crap uh, thing, but it isn't really a North London Problem as far as I know, um, locus. So, so what, how do we apply this to our lives? And we, we, we've talked about some of it already, but I think it is that general sense of there is suffering in the world and in our lives that is not the consequence of uh, specific sin that we have done, um, but is the consequence of living in a fallen world. And when that suffering comes... As it will do and it and it has been doing over these last 18 months but it does do in many other ways at many other times then we need to understand there's a day of the lord coming and so we need to be ready for that we need to understand the day of the lord has already come on jesus so we can put our trust in him and we need to understand that god is going to pour out his spirit to enable us to know him, to tell others about him, so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Okay, and we'll, we'll see some of that in the final two weeks of the sermon series as well. That is where we're, we're heading, and that's the big picture of what it looks like for us in our lives now. I've stuck there an outline of the book, which again is nicked from the very helpful ESV Study Bible, concise and clear and helpful um for your benefits but we won't go through that i'm aware that that's been a very fast roller coaster tour so apologies for that but hopefully we have um seen some things that will get you thinking as we look at this in more detail in our groups um and get you sort of rooted a bit more in 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 what's going on in joel let me let me pray Father God, as we uh, read this extraordinary book and we think about the um, things that we are experiencing in our in our lives now, the things which are like locusts that are destroying things that we hold dear or have found to be things that we are are precious to us that we seem to be um, that have been taken away in some way, or we're experiencing pain or experiencing the suffering of Uh, living in a fallen world, as we will do and and do do in in different forms at different times. Father, help us to hear your call to come back to you, to be ready for the day of the Lord, which these things point us to. The suffering that we experience now is... is, uh, pales into insignificance in one sense next to that day to come. And yet Jesus has suffered that for us. He's taken the judgment that we deserve on his shoulders. He has suffered like us. He suffered for us. And so we come to him and we put our trust in him. And uh, we pray that you'd help us to be people who can share this message with others so that all can hear about that day and be ready for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.